We're going to jump into our time together in the Bible this morning and build on a subject that we began to tease over the last two weeks. If you were joining us over the last two weeks, both Pastor Steve and Pastor Jared at the Cedar Lake campus started to unpack God's peace as a part of our Upper Room series. And in doing so, they touched on the reality of anxiety a couple of different times. And that gave us pause to ask the question, should we tackle that in some more expansive opportunity? So we are going to take the time to do that this morning and really dive in and unpack anxiety from a biblical perspective. We're going to do a couple of things. We're going to answer the question, what is anxiety biblically? After that, we're going to ask, are there people in the Bible who experienced anxiety the same way that we do. Because I think the Bible can be intimidating at times, and we don't, we don't see ourselves and our stories sometimes in there, and they are. And then the third question we are going to ask is, what counsel does the Bible have for us to weather anxiety? This is a very prominent thing in our culture. It's not something that we can just kind of push to the side. There are a number of significant realities that I want to share with you this morning, starting with some, I'll say, startling statistics. Right now, 32% of the population of the United States of America have symptoms of extreme anxiety. But to kind of approximate that for you, that is over 40 million adults, which is roughly one-third of the population of America. If you're a teenager in the room or anyone under the age of 18, that number doubles. 66% of teenagers, you and your friends, 66% of teenagers say they battle with extreme anxiety. What this means on a larger counseling field scale is that anxiety distress is the most common mental health distress in the entire field of counseling. Culturally, too, this is kind of important for us to know, anxiety is an umbrella term. There's a lot that goes under anxiety. Some of these things won't be a surprise to you. If you've ever heard of uh, generalized anxiety disorder, that's there. Phobia disorders, uh, panic disorders, all of those are under the umbrella of anxiety, but there are a couple of others, too. Maybe you would be surprised to find out that obsessive-compulsive disorder is technically anxiety. It's classified under an anxiety disorder, as well as trauma disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder. That is also technically an anxiety disorder. So if those, those are words that mean something to you or someone you know, I hope that you're sitting up and paying a little bit of attention this morning because anxiety is around us everywhere. In fact, in 2020, a year that shall live in infamy, there was a 25% increase in general anxiety of the global population. 25%. Just one event skyrocketed it by a fourth. Here now, in 2023, we maintain 22.5% of the anxiety that rose in 2020, meaning we have not gotten much less anxious. This is a significant subject. I'll give you a little example closer to home. Half of the counseling that I personally do, regardless of the type, involves communicating some form of anxiety management skill because it is so prevalent and it touches every single area of life. And I had a lot more data in my first draft of this that I put together. I probably had another half a page of statistics I could have given you all to make this point. If you right now are sitting in the Crown Point campus or our Cedar Lake campus and you kind of look to your right and to your left in front of you and behind you, within 10 feet of your personhood is someone battling anxiety. If you're watching at home or somewhere else right now, someone in your neighborhood is battling anxiety and not minimal anxiety, extreme 
anxiety. Because with a number like one-third of the country stating that they battle this, it is all around us. This is a distress that is incredibly prominent, which means that we should not only want, we need to know what the Bible says about this subject. Now here's the thing, this is not going to be just a Philippians 4, 6, and 7 sermon. Some of you know Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It's that verse that says, if you submit your anxiety to God in prayer, that he, through uh, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we don't want to forget that, that God is going to give you peace. We know that verse, and that is a very important verse, but guess what, it is not the only verse. And I think sometimes we go just to that one verse, and we forget that there is so much more. So my goal this morning is to root us in realities that show us more. But to do that, we need to understand what we're talking about. Biblically speaking, what is anxiety? How does the Bible define this subject? There are two common words in the Bible that are translated to anxious and anxiety. The first one is deaga, and the second one is mirimna. You don't need to know that, but they are the two most prevalent terms that give us a definition of biblical or a biblical definition of anxiety that we can work with this morning. The Bible then would define anxiety this way. Anxiety is thoughts of unease, uncertainty, agitation, dread, or fear about circumstances with an uncertain outcome. Now, I want to stop and note something to you here. This sermon is going to be the beginning of something. You'll note that I said this is a very biblical definition, and it is. It's directly from the text of the Bible. Now, some of you, when you heard anxiety this morning, you thought to yourself, oh, he's going to talk about all kinds of things. And we are. But not all of them are going to be addressed here. This morning, what I'm going to do is lay the foundation for what is going to be a successive series of weeks that we as a church are going to address the subject of anxiety. This is the theological foundation. Then starting, I think, once a week for the next few weeks, we are going to have two episodes of Bethel Backstage where you all submitted questions over the last bunch of weeks about anxiety, and a number of us answer those questions in great and vivid detail. We're also going to have an episode of Life in Progress, which is another vodcast that we do on our YouTube channel. It'll post on Facebook as well, where I am going to, in no uncertain terms, outline for you how it is that you can manage anxiety from some of the counseling perspective as well. So three things, bang, 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 that are going to come right out of this sermon. A fourth thing that I'm going to share with you as well is two years ago in 2021, we hosted a conference here at the church called the Renew Women's Conference, and it was awesome. And at that conference, I did a 50-minute unpacking from a Christian perspective of anxiety from a counseling and neuroscientific perspective, and at the end, gave a deep treatment of how I actually counsel people through anxiety. You can find that at Bethelweb.org women as well. There's a button that takes you to an archive. Why am I sharing all of this with you? Because some of you, when you heard anxiety, you want all of that. And this is what I have to share with you this morning. If you do not understand what the Bible has to say first, action steps without a theological foundation will ultimately leave you hollow and more anxious. We need the theology of a thing. We need a word from God about a thing before we try and do the thing. Does that make sense? So as those resources come out, remember what we talk about from God's word this morning. So what are some implications of this definition then, this very biblical definition of unease, uncertainty, agitation, dread, 
Uh, thoughts of fear about uncertain futures. What, what are some implications? First, anxiety is reactive. Anxiety is a very reactive thing. It describes it as a thought of reactive recognition. There is something unknown in the future that might become out of our control. The second then builds out of the first. The Bible describes anxiety as a thought that creates a feeling. And this is something that we're going to touch on in all of those vodcasts and future things. But this is a spot where the Bible and science completely agree. If you look at almost all of the very reputable descriptions of anxiety, all of the treatments for anxiety, almost all of them describe anxiety as a thought before a feeling. We can be encouraged by the reality that the Bible and science completely agree on this. Which means third, I want to maybe answer one of the burning questions that is on your mind this morning. Is anxiety sinful? Anxiety is not inherently sinful. What does that mean? It means that anxiety does not automatically become sinful simply by existing. It either becomes sin, it is either harmful or helpful. Whether or not anxiety becomes sinful is entirely dependent on what you and I do with the emotions and thoughts that we experience. And we can be thankful that the Bible is not silent on any of this. In fact, there are many people in the Bible that experienced anxiety in many of the circumstances that you and I do today. So my goal for us is I want us to see the Bible this morning as completely relatable. Not just informative, not just instructing, but relatable. So we're going to examine reliable persons that you can go to in the Bible who experience things as we do. And we will either learn from their example or we will learn from their mistakes. There are three types that we're going to go through this morning. The first type is anxiety regarding the meeting of our priorities. We all have responsibilities and we have anxiety at times around those things. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about anxiety that is a result of sin, meaning when we have sinned, we've done something wrong, and the consequences of that cause great tension in our life. I'm sure no one in here is familiar with that at all. And then anxiety about a future event. All three. Let's start with anxiety regarding our future, or meeting our priorities. And for that, we're going to study Martha. And I would invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to learn about Martha today. Most popularly, Martha is kind of part of the sister duo of Mary and Martha, and they are, by the way, the sisters of Lazarus, the same Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead in John chapter 11. What we find in Luke 10 is that Jesus is in the throes of ministry. In the earlier part of Luke chapter 10, he sends out the 72 disciples. The 72 disciples come back. Jesus teaches the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then we kind of have this transitional phrase where Jesus takes a break. He's, he's kind of resting for an evening, starting in Luke 10, 38. So that's the context of where we're going to begin. Let's read this together. It says, starting in Luke 10, 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to him teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But then the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, 
You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Verse 38 tells us some important things. It says that they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, were on their way and that Martha welcomed them into her home. So they were, they were going somewhere. Examining the other Gospels, we, particularly Mark and John, we can discern that this was kind of a regular thing. On Jesus' travels, on Jesus' goings, he would frequently stop here. What else we can learn then, because we know that this is the same Mary and Martha that's represented in other passages of Scripture, that on their way they were stopping in the village of Bethany. So that's the setting for all of this. In short, what this means is Jesus was stopping at a place that he frequently stopped. He was stopping and staying with people that he knew well. These weren't just anybody. These weren't some of the, the disciples that just followed him around. These were Jesus' friends. They were his trusted people, which is why later on, Mary and Martha, they would have been very, very comfortable calling to Jesus when Lazarus was sick because they knew Jesus well. He wasn't just anybody and neither were they. So the relationship that Jesus and Martha have here should very much be on our minds as we examine this passage. They were friends. In Luke 10, we find Martha then, having welcomed people into her home, being a good host. We need to know that. She was being a good host. Martha was not sinning here. In fact, the Bible doesn't describe her as, as violating any moral standard at all, nor does the context of Jesus' response to her. Jesus does not correct her. Jesus does not rebuke her as if she is doing something wrong. No, in verse 40, in fact, it tells us exactly what was happening in Martha's mind. It says she was distracted. Now, the word distracted here does not mean preoccupied. What it actually means is over-occupied. She had too much going on. Our vogue word for that would be she was overwhelmed. And legitimately so. She was completely overwhelmed by her priorities. So it would make sense then that at the, as the host, she would want some help especially since her sister lives in the same house as her. So this starts to reframe this for us a little bit. No one is actually technically doing anything wrong here. This is why Martha was very comfortable going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, do you not see that I am overwhelmed? Send Mary to come help me. Like, can you not see what is happening? She was genuinely anxious and overwhelmed by the sheer volume of things that it took to host this event. So this was not unreasonable. This was perfectly normal. But what Jesus says is very important. And how he handles all of this is very important. To Martha, it looked like Mary's priorities were out of line. To Martha, it looked like she was doing the right thing and that her anxiety was completely justified. But Jesus teaches us something here. First, he responds very, very tenderly. And he didn't correct her in any way, shape, or form. He didn't even give in to her anxiety. Instead, what he did is he taught her something very specific. He first validated what she was experiencing and acknowledged her. Then he shared that inasmuch as what she was doing was a good thing, that she was doing a good thing at the expense of the best thing. What she was doing was good. What Mary was doing was better. 
Paul David Tripp, in almost all of his writing, has a quote that summarizes this point well that I want to share with you. He writes, good things become bad things when they become ruling things. Jesus is saying, Martha, you are anxious about a lot right now. And they're all good things, but only one thing is necessary, and Mary chose that one thing. Verse 39 tells us what Mary chose. She was listening to Jesus. This was not a casual conversation. They weren't just jab-jawing. This was Jesus teaching something specific. This is one of those times in larger teaching gatherings where Jesus turns aside to his disciples and gives them some private instruction. That is the kind of environment that this was, where Jesus was with his intimate, close people. So was hosting good? Yes. But was it best? No. A good thing became a bad thing because it overruled the best thing. So what is the application that we can learn from Martha about our priorities? How do they work? First, I have a word to those of you who know someone or have a family member or a friend who battles anxiety. I want, I want you to think like Jesus for a moment before I talk to those of you battling anxiety. If you know someone who battles anxiety over leg legitimate things, you need to validate them. Because so often what happens is we want to tell them what to do. We want to point them in the right direction. We want to say, stop it. When in reality, what Jesus does first is acknowledge the distress. And it was only after validation that then he did something. What is it that Jesus did? He lovingly redirected her. He validated and then redirected. What did he redirect her to? To ask and honestly answer this question. Martha, what is your real priority right now? Now here's the thing. Again, that's not a corrective question. It is very easy to think, Martha, your priorities are out of line. Think about this. That's not what Jesus asked. He was legitimately teaching her to ask herself the question, what is your priority right now? Mary is showing you what your priority should be. The hosting, it's a good thing. It's not the best thing. You should be here with me, with us. Do you see that? This is a significant reality, and it begs some questions for us. What are the good things that distract us so often? The good things that we're anxious about that rule us and distract us and overwhelm us from the best thing? Because honestly answering that question will tell you what your real priorities are. Too often, we do not slow down enough to examine our priorities. We have our to-do list and we attack that to-do list as much as we possibly can. But we never take the time to examine the priority list at all. And that's what Jesus had Martha do here. He taught her in this moment to focus on the best thing in her series of priorities, which, mean, which meant setting some good things down. Letting the good things of hosting suffer for a little while so that she focused on the best thing, which was what? Teaching and relationship. Teaching Jesus and relationship with the other disciples that were present. Meaning, we, like Martha, should never be so busy doing and controlling our way out of our anxiety that we miss time with God and other people. We should never be such a slave to the, the anxious to-do list in front of us that we miss the people around us that are being negatively affected by our busyness. Because this happens all the time. 
There are important things in life that distract us from our relationships with other people. There are important things that distract us from our relationship with Jesus. No one is belittling the important things. But if the important things become more important than relationship with Jesus and others, your priorities are out of line. And that is, quite frankly, a self-fulfilling prophecy of anxiousness. You create anxiousness in your life because you realize and you know your priorities are out of line. You're prioritizing things and doing instead of people. Anxiety over our priorities should prompt us as a consistent reminder to follow the instruction of Jesus here and prioritize people, prioritize our relationship with Christ over the to-dos and prevent anxiety from seeping in at all. So that's the first thing. The second example I want us to consider is King David. And I want to examine King David's life from the perspective of anxiety that is a result of sin. King David is a pretty fascinating guy. He, twice in the Bible, is called a man after God's own heart. He has won many great battles on behalf of the Lord. But he's also done some things to give us incredible pause. At multiple times in Scripture, he abdicates his responsibilities as king. His sin against Bathsheba is egregious, among a number of other events that we find in Scripture. And David's life at a number of points is riddled with anxiety. And we can see that in vivid kind of technicolor if we examine the Bible from a chronological perspective. When you read the Bible kind of as you have it in front of you, it's not a chronological story. But when you examine 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles and the Psalms together, we really get an encompassing idea for our purposes this morning of the life of David, particularly in 2nd Samuel chapters 13 through 18. This is a pretty miserable series of years in the life of David, specifically related to the sin of David's family, his sons in particular, and then David's absolute mismanagement of the entire situation. And if I'm being honest, that is putting it very charitably. The short version to get us to the context of anxiety is this. In 2 Samuel 13 through 15, the first half of the story, we find one of David's sons named Abnon assaults one of David's daughters, Tamar. Some of you might be familiar with that story. And while the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 13, 21 that David is very angry about this, it doesn't actually detail what he does. It doesn't detail really any recourse that David takes at all. And this rightly enrages another one of David's sons, Absalom. Absalom stews about this for like two years, takes matters into his own hands, and then goes and kills his brother Amnon. So, obviously, as you can see, this is a big mess. Absalom, then, who killed his brother, he goes on the run, and he's gone for a while, but then, eventually, through a series of events, is welcomed back to Jerusalem. However, he must stay away from his father, King David. He is not allowed in his presence at all. So, the big mess just gets bigger because no one is dealing with this at all. We're just making the big mess bigger and just kind of leaving it alone. It will go away on its own. That's not a recipe for anxiety at all, is it? We just ignore all of our problems. That is what happens here. Well, this reaches its apex when Absalom gets it into his head that he would be a better king than David. 
And David ends up on the run once again. And that's only chapters 13 through 15. 16 through 18 resolve the story. But what we find between 15 and 16 is David composes a number of psalms. Psalm 3, 4, 12, 13, 28, and 55. And these are not pleasant psalms. They are psalms of incredible lament, pleading with God, loneliness, and David expressing overwhelming and intense anxiety. Just listen to a few things that David says. In Psalm 3, David writes, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. That statement specifically would indicate that it is almost certainly Jews, his kinsmen, Israelites, that David is talking about. His own people are turning against him. In Psalm 13, 1 and 2, David pleads, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will uh, will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? That's the ESV. The CSB, uh, Christian Standard Bible, translates verse 2 even more plainly. He says, How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? Psalm 55, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. If that does not sound like anxiousness, I don't know what does. But lest we forget, all of this is anxiety that is directly a result of David not handling his situations and the situations of his children in the best possible ways. This is a hard moment for us to come to. We live in a world today that does not want to recognize anxiety or anxiousness of any kind as wrong, let alone sinful. We don't want to feel like our feelings are wrong, nor do we want to feel responsible for what makes us feel anxious. We are very, very good at pointing outward arrows. And yet, if you believe all of what Scripture says, if you believe that it's inspired by God and the very thoughts and words of God from 2 Timothy and John chapter 1, then we have to embrace the reality that some of our anxiety is directly a result of the choices that we make, particularly the poor ones. We do not have to like that for it to be true. We do, however, need to know how it is we address this because, in some cases, this is very much our reality. Like here, it is David's reality. And thankfully, David gives us some very helpful application. One of the things that we should appreciate David for is when he sins, when he is anxious, when he is in distress, particularly when he is overwhelmed by something that David now recognizes he cannot control his way out of, David often responds in repentance. Repentance is step one to addressing anxiety that is a result of sin. You're never going to make any progress tangibly unless you are first right with God. Repentance is a change of mind. It's turning our mind and our conduct away from sinful anxiety toward repentant peace. This is some of what Pastor Steve and Jared were talking about in the last week or so. Step one will always, before peace comes, step one will always be writing our vertical relationship with God first. That is literally the entire point of the Christian life. 
Otherwise, you are doing nothing but behavior modification. And that will help you feel better, but it will not bring you true and lasting peace. It will not bring you God's peace. And peace that we create will always leave us wanting because it is never full. It is only ever temporary. And if you go back to Psalm 3 and 4, 12 and 13, 28 and 55, you will find exactly how David repented. And you will find exactly what David did after his repentance. After David repented, every single time he, what he did is he had confident proclamations of theological truth. What David did after repenting was declare the truthfulness of God's character. He declared the reliability of God for deliverance to safety. He declared that salvation from his deathly circumstances would only come from God, and he recognized God's trustworthiness, even though in many of these psalms, David acknowledges he does not physically feel less anxious. What he's saying is, God is still safe and reliable regardless of how I feel. David preaches truth to himself. Something we must grow in the ability to do, but that means you must know God, which means you must read his word. And if you are not knowing God through what God has told us about himself, you are setting yourself up for a self-fulfilling prophecy of an anxious life. Does that make sense? You will not have vertical peace if you do not know God. You will not experience true and lasting peace if you are the one who is in control of how you feel it. David in Psalm 139 gives us a very specific application for us. He says in verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The word grievous there is very specific. It technically means anxious and disquieted. So a literal reading of Psalm 139, 23, and 24 is this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test my thinking and know my thoughts and see if there be any anxious or disquieted thoughts in me and lead me in the way, what's the word? Lead me in the way everlasting. David, in his anxiety, is not focused on fixing his present circumstances exclusively. He is focused on writing his relationship with God and thinking about the future. David isn't saying to God, fix my circumstances. David is saying that he, like we, need to redirect our thoughts to godly realities. We need to redirect our thinking to eternal ways of thinking and make anxiety-preventing decisions that are godly, not foolish. You see, it was David's foolish decisions that led him into anxiety in the first place. Eternal ways of thinking take everything we know of what God says of how we should think and live, we apply them to our life, we do what they say, and we put ourselves and keep ourselves on the way everlasting. Church, does that make sense? Which means you need to know God. There is no other way forward without knowing God. The application that Scripture provides to overcome sinful anxiety and the anxiety that is a result of sin is repentance and to direct our thinking to godly living. 
where our faith becomes life and not just something we do when it is convenient on Sundays or in that minuscule amount of time that we give God in our Bible reading. We need to think godly thoughts, make godly decisions, and use godly metrics. We need to stop just slapping a Christian label on a thing and pretending like that's all God asks of us because too often that is what we do. We lean into positional security in Christ but functionally live without God at the center of our decisions. Let me say that again. We lean into our positional security but functionally live without God at the center of our decisions. So often that is how we think. We see that all over David's decision makings that led him into anxiety many times over. We see this is a recipe for an anxious life. So we need to redirect our thinking to how, in repentance, our thinking and choices can be rightly redirected to where God says we need to focus, which is a deeply theological way of saying we need to make godly anxiety-preventing decisions all the time. We need to not choose sin. Because when we choose sin, there are always consequences. Now we could go on, but there's more. I have a third example I want us to go to, and one that I think is very relevant to all of us. The last example is Nehemiah. And if you want to turn to Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2, you can do that. Nehemiah is a fascinating individual. Chronologically, the story of Nehemiah, it takes place near the end of the Old Testament. So if you were doing a chronological reading, you would probably find uh, Nehemiah closer to the end of your reading plan, uh, around Esther and right before Malachi, which means the book of Nehemiah takes place after the book of Daniel, after Nebuchadnezzar, after the fall of Babylon, and during the Persian Empire. The world was largely at peace during the Persian Empire. And what that meant is people that lived under Persian occupation, they had a pretty good life. Even if they weren't in their native homeland, because remember, many of the Israelites were taken out of their homeland and brought to Babylon during the great exile. Nehemiah would have been one of the children of that exile and living under Persian occupation. And Nehemiah had a job. He had a normal life. And he was kind of going about his normal life as the cupbearer of the king. And what we find then in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that Nehemiah meets some of his kinsmen or brethren, as the text says. And he just kind of asks them, hey, how's Jerusalem? How are the state of things in our home world? And they share the devastating news that it is a land essentially filled with unmarked graves, the walls are broken down, and the people there are hanging on by a thread, which devastates Nehemiah. And while we don't have the ability to examine this in great detail, what we know is that Nehemiah was deeply burdened and anxious to do something about this. But before he did anything, the Bible actually tells us he spent four months doing nothing. He didn't do anything, so he feels this burden, and then four months go by, and Nehemiah is pondering and praying and thinking about what it is that he should do. And then the story picks up. So we have, he finds out, four months go by, the story picks out in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. Let's pick that up there. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine up and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. 
Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, and we'll stop there. Nehemiah had great anxiety for a reason. And those four months he spent pondering were very specific. And it's beyond the scope of what we would have the time to address here this morning, but I'm just going to provide you the two reasons that Nehemiah would have been rightly anxious. First, we know from history that King Artaxerxes, his boss, had previously stopped the reconstruction of the wall of Jerusalem and stopped the rebuilding of the city. So for Nehemiah to question that, not necessarily a great idea. We also know that uh, Nehemiah, while a close confidant of King Artaxerxes, the Bible even somewhat describes them as friendly, being the cupbearer of the king was a very replaceable job. His job was to sip the drink before the, ki the king sipped it to ensure it wasn't poison, which meant at any given moment, Nehemiah might die. It meant that replaceability was very much on his mind. So if you combine these two things, King Artaxerxes has already said no to this, and Nehemiah has job security, but he could really be dispensed with at any given time. What you have is a very short life expectancy from this request. Furthermore, it's kind of, if you look at history, these kinds of requests are the things that insurgencies were made out of. But the thing is, at the end of the day, Nehemiah knew that if any change was ever going to happen, King Artaxerxes, he was the leader of the known world. At some point, this request would make its way back up to him. At some point, someone, Nehemiah or someone else, is going to have to talk to Artaxerxes about overturning or amending this request. And then all at once, instead of Nehemiah working up the gumption and doing it himself, the king calls him out. Four months of anxiety and sadness and depression and lamenting before God, and Nehemiah's not even ready. He just gets called out right by the king. And before I jump into application here, there's one thing that I think we need to realize. In the four months of anxiety and sadness, the Bible doesn't actually describing, he doesn't describe Nehemiah as sinful at all. Nehemiah's concern about the future is not described as sinful. D did he sin at any point in that? We, we don't know. But the Bible does actually tell us something about Nehemiah's character and how he managed his anxiety about the future. We find that back in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. And he gives us, in this verse, the initial response to the devastating news that he heard. It says this, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven for four months. And then when the king asked him outright about his state of being, what did Nehemiah do when all of his anxiety was just exposed? On the spot, in the face of what could be certain death, what did he do? Nehemiah 2, 4 and 5, it says, And the king said to me, what are you requesting? What does Nehemiah do? So I prayed to the God of heaven. A quick, spontaneous prayer. It's not like Nehemiah got down on his hands and knees right there and started to pray out loud and then got up and said, so. No, he prayed and, there's that transition word, and I said to the king. 
in the face of overwhelming anxiety, in the face of an uncertain future, in the face of potential death, Nehemiah's first instinct was to seek the face of God. His first instinct was to go to God in the face of anxiety about the future. That is what Nehemiah teaches us. We must first seek God's face. We must go to him before anything else. And if that is not the first thing that you do, this should be a moment for you to pause and ask yourself the question, what is the first thing that I do? When I'm anxious about something, where's the first place that I go? What's the first thing that I do? Am I posting on social media? Do I need to get under a blanket? Do I need to tell someone so that I feel like I'm not alone? Nehemiah tells us the first thing we must do is seek God. My guess is, by now you have begun to sense the theme of this message, the main idea, and it is beautifully summarized in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. All of this that we have talked about is summarized here. It says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Church family, you and I overcome anxiety by trusting in Jesus. Jesus promises peace because Jesus is the prince of peace. He will not leave us alone. He will not leave us in our anxiety. He is the prince of peace and promises, us to, promises it to us. This is not a half answer. This is not a pat answer. This is not a joke. We get so busy doing and controlling everything in our life that our faith becomes requisition to the basement of our life far too often. We only bring out our faith very often at the absolute last minute. From Martha to King David to Nehemiah and countless others, anxiety should drive us into the loving arms of Jesus who says, I will give you peace. I will give you security. Come, you who are heavy laden. Come here, you who are worthy, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest from your anxiety. Truly overcoming anxiety, resting in and believing the promises of God requires that we live our faith. You have to live what you believe or you will always be anxious. Don't get so consumed anxiously controlling your life by doing that you miss the peace-providing relationship with your Savior. Don't just lean into positional security in Christ but functionally live without God at the center of your decisions. Don't sit in your anxiety and do nothing. To battle anxiety, there are three things the Bible instructs us on this morning. To battle, to biblically battle anxiety first, Sit at the feet of Jesus. He promises to teach you. He promises to teach you. And you'll be taught just like Mary and Martha were taught. Second, act on the things that you know. Don't just know the right things, but literally create anxiety and destruction in your life by David by doing the wrong thing or nothing. Instead, pursue the peace that David wrote about when he repented and redirected his thoughts to doing what was right. And when you are anxious 
and burdened, pray. Pray with faith. Pray believing that the God who is a God of peace will give you peace. And rest in the peace and strength God promises to provide in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. In short, biblically battling anxiety means you take your faith seriously and live God's way, not your way and not my way.